Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now is Timothy Adams, who after a distinguished career in government is the chief of staff to two Treasury secretaries and a stint as Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs, is now the president and CEO of the Institute of International Finance, representing banks uh, of all kinds from all over, along with hedge funds and insurance companies uh, as well. Great to see you. Eager to talk about regulation here in a moment, but let me just ask you to react to what we've seen play out here over the last uh, week. How do the, the constituent members of of the Institute sort of, what, how are they watching all of this unfold? What do they care about when they see this debate over healthcare take place? Sure. Well, amazingly, uh, volatility's down, the markets keep powering on, and, and the economy keeps moving on. So I was out on the West Coast last week seeing uh, people from in the banking sector in Silicon Valley. In some ways, they're a little deaf to this. They're a little numb to the, the politics in Washington, and they're just moving on, doing business deals, you know, moving on with life. But Washington's paralyzed, which is unfortunate because we have great challenges in this country. We need to focus on productivity, job creation, capital formation. There's a huge to-do list sitting in Washington, and right now it's all about squabbling, and we're very paralyzed. What what has changed? You say the, the city, the, the place is paralyzed. What's different between now and when you were working for Secretary Snow, working for uh, the Treasury Department? How has it changed exactly? Well, it, it's been a gradual process. It's a, so an evolution, but it's just become much more polarized. Uh, the city is at the grips of the, the extremes of both parties. There isn't much that meets in the middle anymore. There's not a sense of compromise. Bipartisanship has become a pejorative term. And there's just not the kind of work we saw back in, say, the Reagan era where we had uh, tax reform. It was a bipartisan effort. Bill Bradley helped lead that mm -hmm. effort. That does not exist in Washington right now. How hard is it to navigate the place uh, now, I imagine that you talk to a lot of uh, a lot of bankers. You talk to people who uh, had a sense of how Washington works. If it's wor working differently, how much harder is it now to figure out the, the way those mechanisms are, are moving? Well, you have a new administration coming in that's just still, you know, uh, being formed. You know, a whole host of political positions have yet to be filled, and so it's still trying to figure out who do you deal with if you're going to the Department of Labor. Or the oh, Department come of on, Tim. They're in triage this morning. <laughs> I know you're I'm the gentleman. To be kind. I'm trying, you're to, trying be kind. to be nice. I know. I'm sorry, folks, to cut in here. David's got the first Feel couple free, minutes no. here yeah. of the show. Tim, this is an historic moment, as you beautifully said on television earlier. This is not Jim Baker's White House. Whose White House is it? It's, well, it's the president's White I House. I believe it's the people's, but you know, that's it, a different story. <laughs> ultimately, it starts at the top. And look, Tom, there are wonderful people working in that administration. I, Gary Cohn, I'm a big fan. His staff, world class. McMaster at the NSC, very good. And Treasury is actually coming together, and I think Steve Mnuchin's a very good leader there. But uh, the politics is just so crippling right now on both extremes that no one wants to work across the aisle. Do you, do you have any hope that that's going to change? I guess well, we got maybe this, we tax got this, cuts. Maybe there you go. There I was going to ask you about how we got that that news yesterday, where there seemed to be some agreement between the House and if, Senate and the White if House. If we can turn to uh, a tax reform, I think is a bridge too far, yeah. despite the best efforts, uh, you know, uh, by those in the House. But I do think we can get 
a deal on, on tax cuts, maybe in Q4, maybe Q1 at the latest next year, where you get a reduction in the corporate rate. You do something for uh, pass-through, something for individuals, uh, repatriation, expensing. I think there's a deal to be had, but I don't think it's going to be deficit neutral, that's yeah, for sure. sure. <laughs> What have we learned from the way that this process has played out, the, the process of trying to, to make changes to health care that we can transfer to uh, tax reform or tax cuts, as you say? Are we, are we learning something about the way the legislative process is working here in 2017? Well, it's, it's always hard. The, the, uh, the founders designed a system uh, uh, almost not to work, right? So everything has to line up perfectly to get anything done. Uh, there's more of a consensus on taxes in, their health, in healthcare. Uh, you can't do health care reform based on a slogan. Mm -hmm. And the Republican Party had a slogan, which is repeal and replace. But there was no replace. There's no consensus, right. even within the Republican Party, of what health care should look like going forward. Election night, I was standing with one Ian Bremmer. And the moment where I knew this was going to be history made was when a suburban Philadelphia, Bucks County-type district or whatever went Trump, which stunned me. I mean, you know, what do I know? A lot of Americans, including Republicans, are asking the Tim Adams of the party to resign, to quit. Explain why guys like you in the Beltway right now can't resign in protest from this president. What holds them back from resigning as assistant this or assistant that? I think they have a greater sense of obligation to the country. And I talked to a lot of even the career staff. I talked to many officials on a very on a daily basis. And there's a sense that we've got to move the country forward. That the presidency is transitional. We have a president day. We'll have another president eight years from now. Another president eight years after that. But the country needs to endure, and we need to focus on the big challenges this country faces. Who are the adults in the room? I mean, David, we haven't asked this question in ages. Are there? Let me rephrase this, David. Three, two, one. Are there any adults sure, in the room? Sure. As I said, I, I think Gary Cohn is is doing his you very best it. at the yeah, NEC. Yeah. He's I a Democrat. Him. You know, well, I, I don't know his <laughs> politics. We never talk politics, but I think he's a very competent guy. He ran Goldman Sachs. Good morning, smart. Mr. Cohn. Uh, so I think Gary can do a good job. He's got a great staff around him. But he's, you know, he needs support in the political sphere in the White House. And the president needs to focus on policy. And there's too many distractions. You, you listen to the rhetoric. There was an eagerness to blow things up. Let me take the G20 or the G7 as an example of that. I know that when you were undersecretary for international affairs at the Treasury Department, that was something that you likely had to to deal with. We saw the way that those meetings played out. Uh, yes, you can blow things up, but should it be done in a more targeted way? You, you look at how the, the meetings were conducted at those conferences. You look at uh, the speeches that were, were given there. Uh, there is a framework here that exists that I would imagine you and others would think needs to be preserved. Sure. I don't want to defend the status quo. There's always yeah. a room for moving these institutions forward, you know, whether it's the Basel process or the G20, they can always be improved. Yeah. So disruption, some disruption within certain confines is probably a positive and healthy uh, cathartic experience. But blowing the whole thing up d is not. And we need to work with our, our partners. That proved true in the midst of the crisis. Mm -hmm. And there'll be another crisis. I don't know when, mm -hmm. I don't know what it looked like, but you need the capacity to work with your allies around the world. Yeah. Where'd you grow up in Kentucky? Murray, Kentucky. Murray? West, Murray, Kentucky, western part of the state, right on the Tennessee border, about 10,000 people. Wonderful, idyllic place to grow up. It was an ideal place to grow up. I would respectfully suggest those people aren't going to vote for Secretary Clinton or the follow-on. What is the remorse that you see about this? my certitude they voted for Mr. Trump? Well, you, you can look at the numbers, but... Uh, you know, my father was a union member. Uh, that part of that community were long-term Democrats. They were Roosevelt Democrats. And they, Reagan you know, turned shift, them. Reagan turned them. Yeah. Okay. And they became Republicans. Uh, you know, 
the Democrats have not been able to go back there. Can I think, they? That's my question well, to you. I, they well, can Mr. On, Schumer's beginning to nudge but, that. But that's the problem. Can Chuck Schumer uh, from New York City go mm-hmm. to Murray, Kentucky with a message that resonates Donald with Trump went from New York City with a message. Well, yes, but he spoke their <laughs> language, right? And he right. paid attention to them. And he said, you matter. And he talked about the key word, the D word, which is dignity. These people want dignity. They want to be treated with dignity, and they they just want the capacity. Go, for fortunately, a the life. clock. Thank God, the clock's going. A column on the twins in there. We talk about dignity last night uh, in the White House. Can we come back and talk about IIF business? Please, and I'm <laughs> sure you'd be relieved if that were being case. Yes. There's a big sign in the control room. How about we talk about what Tim really does no, no, now? Very good. Very good. Yeah. Tim Adams with us uh, with his public service under Secretaries O'Neill and Snow, and certainly with President uh, Bush. Is if you noticed, he's from Kentucky. In uh, this day of history, truly a major shout out, David Gurren. You've got to carry this forward uh, in your politics today, David. What a job by our Washington team last night. Yeah, at, at the up Russell late. Building I mean, I was kind of late. waking up, checking in on on the votes and all of that. But yeah, Stephen Dennis, uh, yeah. Our, yes. our Senate reporter there, well into the early morning hours, yeah. uh, reporting on what was going on on Capitol Hill. So yeah, plaudits to them for sure. And now we do the unknown. We go where people fear to go not talk about politics in Washington. We do this with Timothy Adams. Um, he is with the IIF. This is a consortium of 500 banks? Uh, financial institutions generally, insurance companies, pension funds, all Big banks funds. and all that. Mr. Ackerman at Deutsche Bank provided leadership decades ago, and Tim Adams, after Mr. Delar's um, historic tenure, drives the conversation forward. Is Dodd-Frank the friend or foe of Jamie Dimon? Well, there are parts of it which he would like to probably change, but no one was cheerleading for repeal of Dodd-Frank. That was a myth. The biggest concern came from smaller institutions that felt like there was a trickle-down effect with respect to the cost of compliance, and there was probably some truth to that. And the Treasury report that just came out last month was an outstanding report, very balanced, very thoughtful, really tries to take a proportional approach to regulation. That's the right way to do it. Do you have a number of... How much expense has been laid on banks because of Dodd-Frank? Is it 3% of SG&A? Is it 6% of revenue? What's the number you've come I up with? I don't have a top a number off the top of my head, but it's a huge number. On top of the constant spend for IT, IT integration, cybersecurity, there's a whole host of, uh, of cost challenges that all these institutions face, which is why I think you'll see further consolidation in the industry. Yeah, you look at uh, the effort here to get tax reform. You look at the effort to change health care. And then you look at regulation. You point out that report from the Treasury Department. And I, as I sort of watched all of this unfold, it was so detailed. 150-plus pages. That's just the first iteration of what the Treasury Department plans to do. That was focused on banks in specific. Why not take that approach and apply it to everything? Why do you think that on the issue of regulation, they seem to be so ahead in terms of, of laying out what the policy position is? Well, it doesn't require legislative action. So 80% of what's in that report they can do through the executive branch. And as they have new individuals coming at the OCC, the FDIC, Randy Quarles yesterday, a dear friend who was testifying uh, for the position of the vice chair at the Fed, They'll take those uh, books, those you said there's new tranches coming out, and that will be their North Star. It's the way they'll think about regulation going forward. It just takes time to get the new personnel in place and actually implement. But directionally, it's ex- absolutely correct. What did you hear from Mr. Quarles yesterday? Uh, he was testifying before the Banking Committee, his uh, nomination now fully underway, the hearing's underway. Uh, what did you hear from him? How do you think the Fed is going to take a different role? How the role of the Fed is going to change you when it comes to regulation uh, under under his uh, leadership, at least in the regulatory sense? 
Well, I think like anyone who's going through Senate confirmation, you want to uh, be polite and have optionality. Yeah. <clears throat> Look, I think he's, yeah, I've known him for a long time. We were colleagues for five years. He's one of the kindest, nicest, most thoughtful individuals I've ever had an opportunity to work with. I think he'll be very pragmatic, very thoughtful. I don't think he comes into this job with any sense of ideology. And I think he wants to balance economic growth with safety and soundness of the system, which is the right way to approach the job. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the, the administration, the Treasury Department, able to do things on its own when it comes to, to regulation. Uh, is the Congress sitting back? Does it recognize the fact that maybe real change can come through these other channels and it's better to tone down the rhetoric, not talk about repealing Dodd-Frank, et cetera, uh, if change can happen in other parts of Washington? Sure. Uh, getting 60 votes in the Senate for anything is near impossible, and that's what you need for most changes to Dodd-Frank. There are some elements that you can do through budget reconciliation, but let the executive branch ex execute. That's what it's there for. And there are ways to take a, a sort of a new approach, a, a fresh approach at regulation. No one's calling for wholesale repeal of Dodd-Frank or other regulatory changes. It really is being smarter, more balanced, more thoughtful, more pragmatic. Did the rule writing process work? It lasted so long, so many thousands of pages, a lot of ink spilled. Did it work the way those who crafted yeah. this law wanted it well, to? Well, it's not over with. We still have the Basel process. Basel three capital requirements are still a work in process. We may not have those until the end of the year. It just never mm -hmm. seems to end. Mm -hmm. And I think what's been missing is is just good old-fashioned cost-benefit analysis, right. right? Ex ante, ex post, implementation. Did it do what it was supposed to do? Were there unintended consequences, and what were mm -hmm. the cost? Too much banking talk. <laughs> if the president of the United States parachuted in to 650 North 12th Street, Murray, Kentucky, 42071, that would be the home of Cracker Barrel, old country diner. <laughs> what would he hear from the Republicans of Murray, Kentucky? Uh, probably get to work, you know, stop the Twitter, stop the chaos and get to work on the things you said you were going to do. Is he capable do. of doing that? Well, it requires uh, focus, attention and, and driving an agenda. And right now that doesn't appear to be the case. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that there aren't people within the administration who are working day in and day out to try to craft mm -hmm. an agenda. But also remember, this was a different kind of campaign. Most policies are developed during the, the, the campaign process. Right. We back in 2000, we had our tax plan. We worked on it for 18 months. It was ready to go. The first month oh, uh, we were in office. Right. But that didn't happen in this campaign. OK, Tim Adams, we've run out of time. Generous of you. Great. I can't think of anyone that should have canceled this morning like Tim Adams of the IIF. Thank you so much for being with us worldwide. of the science of fixed income. George Borey is with Wells Fargo, and one of the great things about Mr. Borey, not only talks to institutions about huge fixed income actuarial issues and that, he actually talks to the public. Let's start with Bonds 101, Fabozzi 101. Are bonds and equities linked now? You and I were joined at the hip with dividend yield somehow mixed with the 10-year yield. Are we anywhere near that traditional linkage, or does that await 14 rate hikes? I think we are. I think we are linked. I mean, I think the reality is is that investors of all stripes, individuals, institutions, uh, you name it, uh, need income. And income can come from a variety of different places. Yields, generally speaking, are pretty low, kind of across the board. And so finding that income is a real challenge. Dividends are a nice source of income for a lot of folks, and you've seen, you know, dividend-producing stocks do do reasonably well over the last uh, few years and, and even this year. Um, and I think that just sort of underscores the need for yield as bond, as the central yeah, banks have pushed down yields, 
companies, investors have had to go to all corners to find but it. Let's be clear here, and this is critical. Dividends are not a yield equivalent. That's gospel, isn't it? They are not a yield equivalent, that is true, but it still produces uh, an income stream. And I, and I think that's the, the important component. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the value um, analysis is, is different for each. And, and I think that's where uh, some of the differences and the distinctions uh, start, to, uh, start to emerge. But I think the, the underlying need for that sort of steady stream of income uh, is very, very high right now. And, and I think that's a function of policy. It's a function of what the Fed has done. And it's a function of kind of the broader backdrop of, of relatively low yields, relatively low growth, relatively low inflation, all the things that policymakers uh, are, are trying to address. You call this a, a grindathon, and I wonder how you <laughs> how you develop the endurance to deal with, with yeah, that as an I, investor. As as an investor, I mean, I think the grindathon is just this low vol uh, type of environment, which has been under sort of successive waves of of downward pressure, kind of reaching all time new lows. It means. Um, you know, for a fixed income investor, uh, that income component becomes almost the, the largest part of your return. And that's certainly been the case yeah. this year. It's absolutely critical uh, that investors kind of capture that coupon, capture that return, and yeah. kind of the compounding effect is where they're getting uh, the most amount of their return. I just went to the Bloomberg Terminal in the Oxford English Dictionary. I looked up Grindathon. Sorry to say, David. <laughs> right next to Votorama. It's not there. Continue, Mr. You, could, you note that what you own is as important as what you don't own. Explain why that's yeah. the, the case in this environment. So in, in, in the world of corporate bonds, um, the, the additional yield you earn for going out of a treasury or a government bond into corporates uh, is very thin right now. It's, it's about 100 basis points for investment grade. It's uh, about three to four times that in, in the world of, of high yield. And, and it means the differentiation in your portfolio. If you're, if you're trying to beat an index and you don't buy something, that's a proactive decision. So um, <clears throat> avoiding the problems uh, becomes a big contributor uh, to a bond portfolio, especially in the world of corporate bonds, where yields are low, spreads are thin, and the margin for error is, yeah. is pretty narrow. Having a great conversation about credit here with George Borey. He's the head of credit strategy at Wells Fargo. $24.3 trillion on corporate balance sheets. Uh, as you note, 50% of that uh, scheduled to uh, mature over the next five years. How do you navigate that? What kind of complications does that pose for you as an investor? So as an investor, I think you you have to uh, you have to be careful sort of where you place your uh, place your place your money. I think it, it's a couple things. Number one, it means there's going to be a steady flow of bond issuance over the next several years. Uh, you know, there's roughly about five trillion dollars of debt that's scheduled to mature. So there'll be plenty of opportunities to invest in corporate bonds. Um, <clears throat> I think you know from an investor's perspective, it's picking the right sectors, it's picking the right names. Uh, it's pretty late in the credit cycle. Companies have borrowed a tremendous amount of money uh, over the last several years, uh, and it's their ability to manage that debt uh, that will be kind of key. So, you know, some of the sectors, like some of the, the, the banking sector, looks looks pretty attractive. Uh, the banks are in pretty good position. Profitability's uh, been pretty nice. Uh, we've liked some healthcare uh, companies um, in the investment-grade world, over in the world of high yield, some of the communication and telecom companies. You're, you're really looking for those companies that have very strong cash flows, and they're going to be able to preserve their access 
to capital markets over the next couple of years. And and that's the the sort of the the wrinkle, if you will, that um, you know that that corporate bond investors worry about. It's the technical backdrop is just as important uh, as you know as, as the fundamental backdrop. The company's profitability is important. Their leverage is important. But then their ability to kind of continue to access the market to manage and service that debt becomes a real driver of those bond returns. And uh, you know that's what we spend a lot of time on. Yeah. Is, is the tendency right now, is your preference to move to, to shorter duration? We have been sort of slowly moving down the curve. And as you've seen, uh, bond yields have started to rise a little bit. Uh, I don't want to over, you know, over-egg it, uh, <laughs> yeah. but they have started to move. And importantly, there's been a little bit of relief at the long end. Uh, the, the 30-year Treasury is getting back up close to 3, 3%. We're, we're not yeah. quite there yet. Um, and, and so sort of protecting uh, your, your price performance becomes absolutely critical. Uh, the total return for corporate bonds are anywhere from four and a half to five and a half percent. It's a little short of equity, ten percent returns. But we're in sort of a yeah. performance preservation mode in the second half. Yeah. We think bond yields will go up a bit, and uh, you want to protect yeah. those returns. I'm at the I'm going to get yelled at the kitchen table mode this weekend, <laughs> and that's because I'm underperforming. The ancient retail path is to extend duration, right? Whether it's to go out to twelve years full faith and credit or to go out to 20, 25, 30 years tax-free muni. What's the trap right now of extending duration? I think people are extending duration simply because, they, as we mentioned before, they need the yield. They need as much yeah, extra yield on. as possible. Yeah. But there's a lot of price sensitivity when that happens. So bond yields are very, very low. So any marginal move up in bond yields is going to have a disproportionate impact on the price. And we're trying to protect against that. You could buy a corporate bond that gives you a little extra yield to buffer it. But if bond yields are rising, as okay. we know, bond prices are going and down. You and I have enjoyed X number of bear markets. Come on. A guy walks into Wells Fargo. He's got 872000 I understand, George, for you, that's a small account. 872000 He's in tax-free muni bonds, and he's got a duration of 15 years and he's desperate for yield. He wants to go out to 22 years. That guy's going to get killed in the next bear market. You get a full faith and credit 30-year, 2.93%. That puppy goes to 305. What happens to that guy trying to climb on the stagecoach with $862,000? Well, I think I think if he if he doesn't sell the bond and he just continues to coop that clip that 3% coupon over time, he gets, you know, he gets his income stream, and I think that's the important thing right now. Is there's price sense, mark to market price sensitivity, yeah. and then there's the the stability of the income stream, and that's what we would really emphasize is that stability. So you want to kind of move a little bit up in quality, make sure that that stability of income is 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 as protected as possible, and then kind of move a little bit shorter in duration just to protect against that price move. Yeah, these are huge. I mean, David, we make light of this, but this is the nuts and bolts of the huge pressure of so many of our listeners saying, I'm exhausted by low interest rates. I've got to do something. <laughs> and that's the pressure that the investment houses face is, is what do you do? I think Five, six percent. Tell me, George, six percent coupons aren't coming back. Well, they're not coming back anytime soon. Um, you know, there's there's, you know. Four percent is about you know is is about as as well as you can do in the investment grade world. You have to go into high yield uh, to get something closer to five percent, uh, and then anything beyond that is really kind of a distressed sort of situation where there's a real uh, kind of problem situation that's either being worked out or coming down the pipe. So 
I, I think it's it's the recognition that we're still very much in a low yield world um, and, and a low income world. And I don't think that changes. You know, I think we're going to stay in this environment for a, for a while. Uh, and I think we heard that this week. We heard it from the Fed. Uh, the Fed kind of pushed out their expectations for a rate hike towards the end of this year. The dollar came off a bit as a result of that. And this kind of low yield world, I think we're stuck here uh, at least for at least for the couple more months, but certainly uh, into the end of the year. You've got a little time here. Relatively soon implies we've got a couple of months until something happens with with normalization in the Fed's uh, balance sheet. In these uh, intervening weeks or months, uh, what are you doing to prepare for that? How does that stand to change the environment? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that, you know, the central bank activity is 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 a potential vol moment. Mm-hmm. And so as we think about what's going to happen in September, uh, Congress will come back. We'll see if we get anything done there. Clearly not a lot's getting done uh, right now. Uh, and so there could be some disappointment there. But then you get the next wave of central bank announcements. You've got the Europeans, the Japanese here in this country as well. And so there's that kind of potential for vol. Over the next couple of weeks, I think it's kind of hunker down. It's sort of play for that carry try and preserve your returns. We're telling investors kind of move up a little bit in quality. We like, uh, you know, we we, we like some of the sectors, as I mentioned before, we like the banking sector, we like investment grade healthcare, Uh, we like the the telecommunication sector in, uh, in, in high yield. You know, we're looking for what I would call uh, safe carry. And, and, and that's really reflective of this kind of very low volatility, slow grind, uh, the grindathon uh, persisting uh, over the next couple of months, uh, uh, next couple of weeks, and, and, and trying to position for that. Has the way you select, the way that you, uh, you approach the selection process, looking at bonds changed uh, over these last few years? No, uh, it, it, it hasn't. You know, I, I would say that... Um, you know, our, our main focus is on fundamentals. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you want to look at a company. What's their paying ability? Um, you know, what's changed is is just simply the volume of money that's being borrowed. Companies have gotten a lot bigger, uh, and and the amount of money uh, need to sustain those companies uh, is is a big is a big factor. So so. The fundamentals are very important. That's the first thing you need to look at. But then the second, as we discussed before, how does that company navigate its way through the capital Mm -hmm. markets? Preserving access to capital or maintaining access to capital is really the lifeblood for a lot of companies. And I think that's one potential pressure point as we look forward into the end of this year, next year, and beyond, that that, – that those the trillions in dollars, roughly six and a half trillion dollars of debt that kind of sits on corporate balance sheets needs to be managed. Mm-hmm. And managing that means access to capital in addition to running a good operation. Uh, so there's there's kind of two, two, two angles um, that, that we spend a lot of time focusing well, on. This has been uh, really wonderful on television and radio today. George Borey with Wells Fargo. Thank you very much. Uh, putting up with our Washington news flow and giving us wisdom. <laughs> wisdom on coupon. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Stephen Friedman is a really thoughtful gentleman from BMP Paribas writing bigger, broader on economics. Stephen, let's rip up the script here and go market economics. 
I got a trend over five quarters, year-over-year GDP, 1.2, 1.5, 1.8, 2.0, 2.1. The vector's in the right direction, but it ain't happening. Do we need fiscal stimulus? Well, I think it depends on what kind of stimulus you, you have. If you just have tax cuts uh, and it's not an attempt to do anything to raise productivity trends uh, in, in the economy, that's not really going to lead to higher trend growth. So if it's just tax cuts for the for the, for the the uh, sake of stimulus, I, I, I would say no, because the economy is already growing above a, a very low level of trend growth. Personal consumption is a mixture, but those sets of numbers are stronger than the visible number. Where is American economic growth weak right now? Well, I, I think if we look at this number, and we'll need to see the details, but yes. it, it does seem like we aren't getting the follow-through on uh, CapEx that we had in the first quarter. We had a very strong contribution to GDP in CapEx. We'll need to drill down and, and see uh, if that continued in Q2. I suspect if the number was just at this level— Well, fixed perhaps. investment. I mean, it's unfair to Stephen because he's sitting here in real time working off the famous <laughs> the BMP. Exactly. He walks in here with like seven laptops from yes, BMP right. <laughs> Paribas. Fixed investment, 8.1% goes down to 2.2%. That's that there dynamic you yep. that you're talking about. Exactly. David? I just want to, as, as you're forecasting out here, of course, the clarion from this administration has been, we'll get to 3% growth through tax reform, regulatory reform, what what, what have you. Uh, as, as you forecast, do you, do you see anything close to that? And what, what would be the thing that would drive us to it? Uh, I, I don't. I think it's very challenging to get to those numbers. Uh, first of all, if we think about uh, trend growth, you need to think about labor force growth and productivity growth. On the labor force side, uh, we face strong demographic headwinds with an aging population. And in addition, to be frank, Trump's immigration policies are actually going to push in the opposite direction. So that's actually a negative for trend growth. Then if we look at productivity, yes, I think on, on the margin, some of the things that the administration wants to do in, in terms of reduced uh, regulation uh, can certainly, uh, and, and, and tax reform can, can boost productivity over the longer term. But really, there is, there is an issue about how skilled is our job, is, is, our, is our labor market, is the job training there. And I think that, that continues to be a headwind. Give us uh, your diagnosis of the health of the, the consumer today, the degree to which the, the consumer is driving the numbers we saw today, driving the health of this U.S. economy uh, overall. And, and I think that will continue to be the case because when we look at the consumer, first of all, we see uh, that jobs are very plentiful right now. We might not be seeing the real wage growth that we want, but employment is there. You add to that that consumer balance sheets are generally pretty healthy. The level of consumer leverage has come down uh, since, since the Great Recession, so that's positive as well. Uh, and also the cost of servicing debt mm. is, is low, too. Uh, and then you add to that the sort of wealth effects from a higher stock market. All that should be supportive of, of, of solid, if somewhat yeah. unspectacular spending. This is an appropriate question for you, again, because you take a much broader, bigger picture with BNP Paribas than many. Is the glide path of economic growth 1.4, 1.2, 1.5, 1.8, 2.0, 2.1? Is that a, is that acceptable to any politician? Republican or Democrat? Probably to politicians, no. Thank you. No. So what are they going to do? They couldn't do it last night, uh, we saw. What is to do for politicians worried about getting reelected? Well, there's a difference between getting reelected, as you know, and what, what's going to, to raise uh, trend growth over time. Um, when it comes to reelection, I suspect that in the end of the day, uh, tax cuts are, are, are most important uh, uh, for Republicans at this point in time. Uh, if anything, I think the failure uh, of their repeal and replace efforts probably put more pressure on them to, to get not necessarily to tax reform, but to, just to simple tax cuts. Tax reform is a very complicated uh, area that it's very hard to do through the reconciliation process. I think in the end, uh, for their purposes of, of, of 
boosting their chances in the next well, election. It's about tax cuts. Uh, and, of course, off the numbers, you heard Karen Moscow spin the idea of a much better number. This is true. 1.2% revision, and we exploded David Gura up to 2.6%. But the market doesn't really respond mm. like you'd think. Why is that, Stephen Friedman? I mean, we're supposed to see green on the screen, higher yields, stronger dollar, maybe even equities rebound. It didn't happen. Why not? I think it's because I think expectations were actually uh, yes possibly for an even stronger number. The risks were to the upside, and I think that's because we had strong durable goods numbers that came out yesterday, and we saw a number of people revising up their GDP forecasts uh, after that. So well, I think markets were positioned for an even stronger You've number. had time to look at the results, even in French with BMP Paribas. <laughs> what do you see? Uh, well, was I alluded to, what I, what I find— Investment. Disappointing is, yeah, the CapEx contribution to GDP, just 0.6%. And also, um, residential investment actually subtracted from growth. I saw that. Are you going to blame the president? Everybody else, pile on here. Everybody else is blaming President Trump for anything at all. (laughs) This morning, do you want to blame the president in Washington and a lack of confidence for this? No, I I don't don't think I would. I I think if uh, the number had been very strong, I wouldn't have given credit to Washington. So I can't do the same when the number is weak. Uh, I think this, this is just within the normal variability of trend growth that's probably a little bit below 2%. Um, I wasn't expecting uh, sustained growth. Uh, uh, um, I, I didn't expect a breakout of growth to the upside, and this is certainly consistent with, with, with that expectation. I've got that statement from Wednesday afternoon up on the screen here from the, the FOMC and uh, in its assessment of the economy. You're impressive. Members of the you are, you are, you are so far from liberal arts. You know, now. yeah, I've got it right here, You're bookmarked, yeah, bookmarked in Google. Anyways, uh, note that business fixed income uh, rather, business fixed investment, household spending uh, is up. What did you make of the Fed's sense of how the economy is doing uh, right now? And uh, how do you react to, to, to Janet Yellen's con- uh, contention here that we're seeing a, a transitory uh, inflationary headwinds right now? Well, I don't. I think their their view on growth has been fairly consistent. Yeah. It's, sort of, it's sort of solid but unspectacular. No one's going to be very impressed with the rates of growth that we're seeing. I have taken issue for a while with how they've characterized, characterized inflation. And I've, I, I was very heartened to see that in her testimony, she seemed to acknowledge that what we're seeing isn't just transitory. On the other hand, when I look at the statement, when I look at that second paragraph, which which is the forward-looking statement, it doesn't seem like they've really changed their inflation expectations very much. They still expect inflation to rise to 2% over the medium term. And that tells me that you're still going to see rate increases going forward. Not in September, but I think in December, if you have some improvement in the month-over-month inflation readings, they will continue to raise rates. The, the, committee, the committee continuing to monitor inflation developments, is there more it could be doing, more indeed it should be doing when it comes to inflation? Well, I, I'm very concerned with inflation expectations. Um, I think they've, they have fallen. I think they've slipped from the Fed's uh, 2% objective. And that tells you that it's going to be even harder to, to hit 2% inflation. I think at this phase, they, I think they do need to reevaluate their strategy a bit. And I would prefer to see them hold off raising rates at all until you see some firming in the inflation trend. Uh, yet it seems like that's not going to be the case. It seems like they are <laughs> exactly. in perpetual motion. They're they're moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you what do you make of that? Is it a return to a more traditional, more formulaic monetary uh, policy? Are they content to be doing that? Do you think, or or, do, or is there a chance you think that uh, the level of nuance you're describing could come back into the into the equation? I, I think the best we can hope for is tactically they delay another rate increase until next year. I think in terms of changing strategy, that's very hard to do when you're in the midst or at the start of a leadership transition at, at, at the Fed. You have to wait to see who the next chair will be. You have to see who the new governors are. So actually changing strategy, I think, would be very difficult for for, for that reason. 
I, I mean, we get back to where the animal spirit is a nominal GDP. I mean, what, what in your head is the run rate now of real GDP and real inflation? Add them together, and that's called animal spirit. Mm -hmm. What are the two numbers you have? Uh, so for for real GDP, yeah. I would probably say trend growth is around one and a half percent, oh, maybe one point seven five. Really, uh, continue with the inflation number, and I want to circle back to that. So the inflation number should be two percent if we think the, the Fed is credible yeah. in meeting their objective. But over the last five ten years, what is inflation average? Okay, 1. so this 6, is critical. On the edge of George Akerlof and Robert Schiller, you're modeling nominal GDP under four percent. Yes, is a general statement. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the politics earlier. What does that mean for our kids? I, I mean, I don't understand how a sub-2% run rate on real GDP, folks, of all the people we talked to, that's pretty gloomy, how societally we can continue with that. I just don't get it. How does the machine work with the oil running at a sub-2% real GDP? Right. Um I, th I think it, it, it means that we have to think about our spending habits and our willingness to take on debt, for example, which I think is still too high in the consumer sector. But, of course, once you start to think in those terms, if everybody does that, that just leads to lower growth going forward as well. I mean, I would suggest, David Gurr, that, that if we get a Stephen Friedman view and we say Dr. Friedman's wrong and we end up with 2 or even 2.1% real GDP, that's still not acceptable mm. to a huge body of people. That's true, and it still leads Where's to a lot of frustration. Where's the fiscal program to begin to nudge us away from your gloomy view? So I, I think you do need tax reform. I think you do need um, uh, infrastructure yeah. development. And something that continues to knock enough attention is education in this country. We do not have the, uh, the skilled labor force that we should have. And I think there's a, a tremendous skills mismatch in the labor market. The jobs are out there. There are a tremendous amount of job openings out there. Uh, and yet there's still... Um, uh, you know, the unemployment rate actually is still fairly high for the level of job openings that we that's have. That's going to happen, not at the federal level, but at the state and local level. We had a conversation with one of our columnists a couple of days back about the Foxconn decision to invest in Wisconsin, and he said part of that plan is for there to be some sort of yeah. collaboration with a community college in the area. We've seen this across the country where you have a company come in, build a facility, mm -hmm. and then probably endow uh, some program, the, the goal of which is to get graduates of that program to work mm -hmm. in the new facility. Is that where we're headed when it comes to training and apprenticeship and getting people skilled up for jobs that they can do is that where it's going to happen? Is it going to be engineered at the state or local level? I think it has to happen at, at a number of levels. At every level. And, yeah. and what, what you're describing is certainly a very positive development, those types of partnerships between businesses and the local community. Uh, I do think, though, when it comes to the education system uh, broadly, I think we've been underinvesting in education uh, broadly for years, and I think that has to change if we want mm. to have a competitive workforce. Stephen Friedman, thank you so Great much. Great yeah. Really timely. We've got to get you back when we're in this. deal and in the university of texas austin there's a lot of people pretending to be from austin lloyd doggett has been in every bar in austin he joins us now <laughs> he is the uh congressman from i guess i would say folks not to bore anybody the uh 25th the 35th let's call it the 35th district of texas but lloyd doggett what i would really say Taking off Chris Ingram's wonderful article in the Washington Post, you're from the Elephant District. You are in one of the most gerrymandered districts <laughs> in America. You are living gerrymandering. 
What do we need to do in this nation about gerrymandering a wise one? Well, uh, I also have the good fortune of representing the Alamo and all of downtown San Antonio. <laughs> when people uh, when people ask me about where I live, I usually say I-35, which connects uh, Austin and San Antonio. Exactly. Uh, I believe I'm the uh, the only member of Congress to have f- served under three different numbered districts. So getting a chance, uh, courtesy of the state Republican leadership, to meet a lot of great people in Texas, just yeah. not all at the same time. Let me introduce David Gura, who will be wiser on current events. <laughs> no, David? No, no, Congressman Doug, great to have you with us here on our Thank phone you. line, sponsored by Spectrum Enterprise, your nationwide provider of scalable fiber network services and managed cloud uh, solutions. We got this joint statement yesterday from the White House and Republican leadership on Capitol Hill about tax reform. In the last paragraph of that statement, there's this line, as the committees work toward this end, our hope is that our friends on the other side of the aisle will participate in this effort. Is there any appetite among Democrats to engage with the process of tax reform at this point? Well, there's a great appetite to participate. There's just not been much opportunity. Mm. I mean, really, isn't it amazing that not only Democrats, but members of the business community across America, uh, 13 months after Paul Ryan announced the great uh, Republican tax blueprint, we have a three-page press release containing only one specific, that they're abandoning their ill-advised border adjustment tax, and really, you know, giving us less detail than President Trump did in his one-page summary of his tax plan back in, in uh, April. We, we look at the, the dysfunction, you could call it, on Capitol Hill generally. Give us a sense of what, uh, what things are like on the House Ways and Means Committee. You sit there, you're the, a ranking member of the subcommittee on tax policy within that, that committee. How much comedy is there among you and your Republican colleagues uh, when it comes to issues like, like taxes on the committee? Well, I think we have a good uh, professional relationship with respect of one another. Uh, sometimes we can get together, often we cannot. But we've gone uh, almost a year without a single hearing, without a single person from the administration uh, or a tax expert or a business that might be impacted by some of the fine print of what we think this proposal might be coming forward to explain it. We finally got the first public hearings. Uh, We have had exactly one hearing on small business, exactly one hearing on individual tax changes, where something as complex and far-reaching as our retirement system got one witness for over a year. Uh, These uh, far-reaching, after 30 years, uh, attempt to get comprehensive tax reform they deserve thorough consideration because the impact of proposals like ending automatic uh, or like having uh, automatic expensing but eliminating interest deductions, the impact of a proposal like that on different parts of the American economy is far-reaching. And every business group deserves an opportunity, along with public interest groups and others, to have a say and to see what's going on, not to approach this like the failed uh, uh, health care mm-hmm. tax cuts uh, by keeping everything under lock and key and even excluding not only Democrats but many Republicans from being able to see what is going to happen. If, if you were to have a, a drink with your colleague from Texas, uh, Congressman Brady, one of those bars that Tom Keene just mentioned, perhaps up, in spoke. The, perhaps up in the woodlands up where uh, where Mr. Brady is from, what would you two, two, two talk about? What's your sense of the way Congress is working? Is there a way forward to improve the relationship between colleagues like you? 
Well, I've known uh, Chairman Brady a long time, and, and certainly we could sit down and talk about this. Uh, I think that, you know, what I would be talking about is first areas of apparent agreement. Uh, I would think it is so important that we not burden any business or individual with additional federal debt, with borrowing from the Saudis and the Chinese or whoever to finance tax breaks. Mm -hmm. And he has said that's the approach that his plan will take. Uh, that plan relied on this bill, trillion dollars of revenue from a border adjustment tax to raise uh, the cost of everything coming in right. the country. Uh, and uh, now they that's the one specific we got yesterday is they're abandoning that. And so what I would like to know is if we're to maintain our shared view, our apparently shared view yeah. of no new debt, what specifics will there be to make up right. that trillion-dollar void? Right. Lloyd Doggett, uh, you know the broken spoke. I don't even know if you've danced there or not. I know the broken spoke. I know you do. <laughs> it is iconic. <laughs> I'm going to suggest – I'll do the Texas two-step. I'll bet you did. I would suggest a lot of the broken spoke crew voted for Mr. Trump. Is their support wavering? That's true. Not so many in Austin, but some of our neighbors who come in from the surrounding area to enjoy right. a good time is, in Austin. Is their support wavering? Is the Broken Spoke crew, is their support wavering for the president? I think it's very mixed. There's still many uh, people there who want to give him additional opportunity, but it does really no. defy uh, uh, one's uh, ability to understand it okay. when day after day, crisis right. after crisis, and this latest no. uh, episode this Lloyd. week. Lloyd Doggett, thank you so much. There was episode one, two, and then three, and it quickly dawned upon all of us that for Global Wall Street, the David Rubenstein show, which doesn't even capture peer-to-peer -peer conversations, was must-watch, must-listen for all of Global Wall Street. The conversations are fabulous between Mr. Rubenstein and Carlisle Group and whoever the guests may be. Um, this week's episode is really cool because we have Chicago Law talking to Harvard Law. Let us listen as David Rubenstein talks from Elliott Management to the wonderful Paul Singer. Here's David Rubenstein. So how do you see the economy right now? Are you worried about the economy? I'm very concerned about where we are um, uh, in terms of the financial system, the, the economy, the American economy, global economy. After nine years of what I consider to be distorted, a distorted set of um, policies, um, completely oriented towards um, what I regard as monetary extremism, combined with what I consider to be growth-suppressive poli uh, fiscal policies, regulatory, um, uh, uh, tax, um, and so I think it's created a distorted recovery, has been p partially responsible for this, this augmentation, exacerbation of um, um, uh, inequality that's caused um, <clears throat> a combination of that and the incomplete recovery um, uh, has caused this middle class um, uh, uh, stress and um, edginess around the world, which has led to some political, you know, fringe parties and fringe thoughts, populism. And so um, after nine years of this artificial um, levitation on the part of um, financial assets, um, high-end real estate, art, the things that rich people buy, um, what we have today is a, 
uh, a global financial system that's just about as leveraged and in many cases more leveraged than before 2008. And so, um, and I don't think the financial system is more sound. And I'd, I don't think that the fixes that have been put into place have actually um, created a sound financial system. So uh, I don't believe that confidence is justified in policymakers and in central bankers. Uh, and the fact that confidence has not been lost um, up to now um, uh, is, is, is obvious. But um, if and when confidence is lost, I think it could be lost in a very abrupt fashion, causing um, <clears throat> conceivably a ruckus in the bond market, stock markets, um, uh, and in uh, uh, financial institutions. Uh, Paul Singer, a window into uh, his conversation with David Rubenstein. And joining us now, Mr. Rubenstein, uh, with the celebration of peer-to-peer -peer conversations. David, first of all, are you having fun doing this? Is it a chore now to be a rock star and to do a, to do a TV and radio show? Hardly a rock star, but uh, it's, it's pleasurable. Um, I do enjoy talking to people that I have known for a while. Yeah. Almost all of these are individuals that I have either talked to extensively, have done some business with, or, or have interviewed before. So it's a, you know, a friendly kind of conversation. And uh, mm. with Paul Singer, I, uh, I was surprised by some of the things he said, but I think they're very good cautionary notes. They're cautionary notes. He's a member of the Republican Party. Is he a supporter of Mr. Trump? I asked him that, and uh, he did say that he voted for him, but beyond that, he didn't really say that he was close to him. He did say that he had met him uh, at the White House. He had been invited down, I guess, once one occasion, but he was fairly clear that he did not uh, actively support uh, President Trump. Tom mentioned a moment ago you're, you're both uh, graduates of law school, and there's a point in the interview where you ask him about the decision that he made, not unlike the decision that you made to leave practicing law to get into to business. What did he have to say about that and uh, share a bit about your personal experience as well, the decision to make that uh, move and what prompted you to do it? Well, he may have been a better lawyer than I was. <laughs> I was uh, a lawyer who practiced twice, once in New York and Washington. It was clear my clients didn't think I was so wonderful and it was clear that my <laughs> colleagues didn't think I was so good. So I had the advantage of being Peter principled as a lawyer. You know, if I was a great lawyer, I'd be practicing law today. I think I'd be less happy than I am today. But lawyering is something that some people have a skill for. I don't think I did. I think Paul felt he had better things he could do, and I think he was very happy that he, he left the practice of law. If you would speak to the, uh, the, the stubbornness, the doggedness of, of Paul Singer, we think of the, the role that he played with regard to Argentine debt, uh, the, yes. the forcefulness with which he deals with, the, with companies in whom, with whom he invests. Uh, give us a sense of, of what he's like uh, as a negotiator, what he's like as an investor. People have a sense that hedge fund investors are people who make a decision one hour and then they reverse it an hour later or they trade out. Uh, he's a very dogged person, as you suggest. He bought Argentine bonds probably mm -hmm. 15 years before he actually sold them. And he held on to them for through many, many years when there was no movement in the bonds at all. So he's a very um, determined person. He's willing to hold on to positions for many, many years. And uh, he pointed out that he started his, his firm in 1977 with $1.3 million. It's compounded 13% net for four, over 40 years, which is an incredible record for yeah. over a 40-year period of time. So I... I I think he's obviously a person who has a longer-term perspective, and I think he's a person who is the tip, not the typical, perhaps, uh, hedge fund person who is seen, rightly or wrongly, as trading in and out of things very quickly. He tends not to do that. David, you've got immense experience with the character and quality of each and individual chief executive officers. 
can a chief executive officer from a big fancy company, can they run something entrepreneurial like Uber? That seems to be the topic of the morning. Ms. Whitman steps aside. Mr. Immelt is vetted. Maybe David Rubenstein's going to run Uber. If you want to make news this morning, let me know. But can a corporate guy shift over to the entrepreneurial ballet and dress of running Uber? Clearly, there are different skill sets. Running a large industrial conglomerate is different than running a startup. On the other hand, uh, Uber is hardly a startup at this point. Jeff Immelt, I don't know if he's going to take this job or he's been offered it, but he's a, clearly a very talented executive, and he did many good things at, at GE. But I believe that generally people who are running good Fortune 50 companies may not be the ideal people to run um, entrepreneurial companies. On the other hand, there are some cases where that might work, and Jeff might be a good example of the cop, kind of person who could do that. David, Tom asked you if uh, if uh, Mr. Singer is a Trump supporter. Let me just ask you about his his politics more generally. He's invested a lot, uh, yes, in candidates' campaigns, but also uh, in certain social issues. And I wonder if you could speak to that, but also just to a trend that we've seen uh, in recent months. Certainly, a lot of executives, particularly in Silicon Valley, speaking out more on uh, social issues. Do, do, do you sense there's a, a trend there that uh, executives are more willing to to put themselves out there? Uh, yes, I do. I think. Uh Look, when you have a great deal of money and uh, you have bought the various physical material things you might want, you might say, I want to do something else with my life. I want to actually make a difference, and I can make a difference in the political realm or the governmental realm or the public realm. And, and so Paul Singer is one of those individuals. He's been very involved, as you said in the interview, on uh, marriage equality. Um, as he pointed out, his youngest son uh, told him when the, when the youngest son was 21 that he was gay, and, and uh, Paul got very involved, uh, first anonymously, but later publicly, in trying to support uh, marriage equality. And I think he feels he's made a real difference in that area, and he obviously has. So I think many people who, once they have money, do feel that they, there's more to money than just accumulating uh, mm. assets. There's things you can do to change the world for the better, and I think Paul is an example of that. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. It is Peer-to-Peer -peer Conversations, the David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer -peer Conversations. I can't say enough about the extent of it and the differentness of it. Compared to most media, on Bloomberg Television, Wednesday, 9 p.m., uh, globally re-airing over the weekend. Bloomberg Radio, Friday, tonight, 5 p.m., re-airing throughout the weekend as well. We thank David Rubenstein for being with us today. That was great. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.